Good morning. It's great to be with you, and I've looked forward to this. You have a beautiful facility here, and you've already been very, very friendly to, to me and to my wife, Tish, and we're thankful for the opportunity to spend time with you and to get to see you and to be a part of, uh, of this great gathering and this Friends and Family Day. I'm pretty sure that if I were to ask you, <clears throat> what is the shortest verse in the English Bible that someone here, probably just about everyone here could tell me, the shortest verse in the English Bible, who knows what it is? Jesus wept, John 11:35. Not as many people know the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament because we generally don't carry one around. Even if we know how to use it, uh, we probably don't carry it around all that much. But you know there's a verse in the Greek New Testament that is the shortest verse based on the number of Greek letters that make up that verse. And it's not John 11:35. It is... 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice evermore. It's interesting, the shortest verse in the English Bible is about weeping. The shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is about rejoicing. And if you really boil down what life is all about, as you look back over your lifetime and the moments that really stand out, I would venture to say that a lot of the moments that really stand out in your life and mine are moments of great joy or moments of great sorrow. We all remember when the twister came through in the year, whatever it was that it came through. We remember the birth of our children. And just about four weeks ago, uh, Tish and I were blessed to have a new bundle of joy. Bundle of joy, yes, sir. Uh, a grandchild, a granddaughter, as a matter of fact, to add to the grandson that we have. And so this is a great moment for us. And you can remember the moment that you got married and what a great day that was, perhaps for you. I can also remember March the 4th of 2016 when my mother entered the room and said to my dad, Ted, I can't breathe. And I remember what happened in the next few minutes after that when I asked her if she was having a panic attack and she said, no, I'm dying. And I didn't think that she really was. I thought she thought she was, but within two minutes after saying that, she was gone and there was nothing we could do to bring her back. You have your own moments that you could think of. In fact, Someone might hear this, rejoice evermore from 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and say, wait a minute, evermore? Well, you remember the companion text to that concept, Philippians 4.4? What does Philippians chapter 4.4 say about the frequency, uh, the perpetuation of our rejoicing? It says, rejoice in the Lord. Give me the next word. Always? And again I say Rejoice. Now, let me ask you this question. Have there ever been times when you thought to yourself, I don't know how in the world I'm going to make it to the next day, much less get through the next week, and yet we find a way. Listen, <clears throat> the Bible gives us 
some commands, but I'm very much aware, even though I've not been briefed about your circumstance, I know that when you hear the words rejoice evermore or rejoice in the Lord always, it would be easy for you to say, but Brother Clark, you don't know what I'm going through. And I would have to say, you're right, I don't. But someone could say, Brother Clark, are you aware of the fact that I just got a diagnosis from my doctor and it is malignant and it is serious and it's aggressive and I'm going to have to go through some treatment, surgery and pray for the best? Are you aware of that, Brother Clark? And I'm supposed to rejoice always? Are you aware that just last week I buried my loved one of 50 plus years and as I walked away from the grave site, my knees buckled and I didn't know if I could make it back to the car and they had to prop me up. And they got me home and everyone surrounded me for a few days and then the dishes were returned to the church building and life without people all around me began and I kept looking every day at a, an empty chair where my loved one sat for all those decades <clears throat> And I'm supposed to rejoice anyway? BJ, when I got married, I said, I do. And my mate said, I do too. And I thought they did. But the truth is, they left me. And my, my heart is shattered. I don't know how I'm going to make it through another day. I'm fearful of the future, trying to govern my life by myself, raise my children by myself, and I'm supposed to rejoice evermore? PJ, my loved one didn't die, but they are very, very sick, or they're not mentally able to do what they used to be able to do mentally and their mind just isn't there like it once was. And so they say things to me that are quite frankly, they would be very hurtful if I lingered over them and thought about them. I'm not used to those kinds of words and that kind of sarcasm coming out of the mouth of this loved one. And I'm doing my best to provide for their care and I'm just flat out exhausted. I don't know how I'm gonna make it to another day and I'm supposed to rejoice. Always. When my children were small. We had them in Bible class, Brother Clark. We had them in worship service. We had them Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation, Bible school, Christian camp, home devos. I mean, we tried everything we knew to try to teach them the right things. And they grew up and they left the home and they met someone that had not been raised the same way and that person has now convinced them that going to church is not really all that big of a necessity and so they don't go anymore or they go to a church but it's not one you can read about in the New Testament and I'm supposed to rejoice anyway. Did I keep going? I may not have even touched on the emotional pain you brought with you here this morning. I don't know what it is. 
It may not even be connected to anything I've mentioned, but here's what I do know. Whatever it is, there are reasons you can rejoice in spite of what's going on in your life. And I want us to be able to find a way to do that using the scriptures. Would you go to Acts chapter 5 with me for just a moment? I want you to notice that the apostles uh, were certainly facing less than ideal circumstances. They were called in and told, don't you dare preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ anymore. And yet they continued to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they summoned them again. And this time in verse number 40 of Acts 5, it says, when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council. And what does the next word in your Bible say? Rejoicing. I thought they'd just been beaten. They had. Why in the world would you go out rejoicing after you've just gotten a beating for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead? Look, they weren't rejoicing because they had been beaten per se. They were rejoicing about the one for whom they'd been beaten and they were able to rejoice. Your Bible does not say, and the apostles left and departed from the presence of the council and quit preaching that same day. It doesn't say that. They were rejoicing. To Now, here's where we have to get down to what rejoicing is. It's not plastering on a, a phony smile and pretending that you're not hurting when you are. It's finding a way to rejoice even when you are. I'm about to date myself seriously, but I'm confident that in a crowd of this size with the age group we have represented here, some will track with me on this and others will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. There was a television program called Hee Haw that was on years ago. And one of the lyrics from one of the songs went like this, and no, I'm not about to sing it to you for scriptural reasons and reasons for your benefit. Bloom despair and agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery, and if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. And some of you are mouthing the words with me so you know this song. Others are saying, he what? I don't understand. I have a friend, and I'm not telling you anything I didn't tell him years ago, decades ago now, when I was a local preacher in a church, and there was a single man there that had the same common sports interests that I had, and we'd play golf together, we'd do a lot of things together. One thing I observed about him is he was very evangelistically minded. I'd watch him invite people to services, try to set up Bible studies. He was really going at it to the best of his ability. But he had one characteristic that was very well known to anyone that knew him very well. He was pretty much a very depressed person, generally speaking, always down in the dumps, despondent, despair. And one day he lamented out loud to me, he said, I just don't get it. No one ever says yes to my invitations to come to services 
and no one ever wants to study the Bible with me, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. It's one of those times where as a friend you're thinking, should I or shouldn't I, should I or shouldn't I? And I think I know what might the, prob- the problem might be, but I don't want to lose this friendship. But I thought, we are friends. I'm, I'm going to venture this. So let me ask you something. The people you work with that you invite to come to services with you, when they look at you, do you think they see someone that has found true joy in life and Christian living? Or do they look at you and say, that guy looks about as miserable as I am or worse. Why should I trade my worldly misery for his Christian misery? And he took it well and he acknowledged that, yeah, they probably don't look at me as the happiest guy on the planet. And I said, I'm just asking, what would make them want to become what you are? And when it comes to your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones, what would make them want to be a part of what you have? It is found in Philippians chapter 4, and this is where I want to find the last three points of, of this message, really the main three points of this message. Right here in the text, in the sermon outlines that come right from the text are are precious indeed. They're embedded right there in the scriptures. Here is the statement that we made a while ago, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Uh, Question, where was the apostle Paul when he wrote that? Who knows where he was when he wrote that? Anyone know? He's in prison. And I know a preacher who works as a He used to work as a chaplain in a prison setting. And he said that one of his jobs was to read the letters that the prisoners were writing to people to make sure they weren't requesting any contraband to be sent in or anything like that. And he said that uh, in all of the letters he ever read from any prisoner, he didn't ever remember reading anything like rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. It was usually, I can't stand this place. The guards are out to get me. My cellmates, I can't stand them. I hate the food. I hate everything about this place. And there wasn't any joy in their daily living. Tell me how in the world Paul could be where he was in the circumstances he was and say rejoice anyway, always. Here's reason number one. It comes right before this statement You can rejoice no matter what if your name is in the book of life. Look at verse 3. I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers. And then notice, whose names are in the book of life. And then what's the next word that you read? Rejoice. Now, is this an accidental or intentional connection whose names are in the book of life, rejoice. To prove to you it's intentional, I'd like to invite you to go to Luke 10, and we'll come back to Philippians 4 in a moment. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out the 70 on a limited commission, and when they return from their commission, uh, the Bible says in verse 17 of Luke 10, that the 70 returned again with joy. Well, what is the basis of their joy? They say it, Lord, even the devils, the demons are subject to us 
through thy name. And Jesus says, yes, I know. I saw you exercise power over. uh, But look at verse 20. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. Now, this is our Lord Jesus talking. But rather rejoice because. And what's the next line? Because why? Your names are written in heaven. You want a reason to rejoice? You can't find a better one than the one the Lord gave. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And what do we see in Philippians 4.3? Whose names are in the book of life, rejoice. And so if you came here today with your name in the Lamb's book of life, you have something about which to rejoice no matter what else is going on in your life. Why is it such a big deal to have your name in the book of life? Let me show you what happens if it's not there. Go to Revelation 20. In this uh, great white throne judgment scene that John saw, he sees in verse 11 a great white throne, and he sees in verse 12 the dead, small and great. This is Revelation 20 and verse 12. Now then he sees books, plural, being opened, and then he sees a book, singular, being opened, And it comes right out and tells us what that book is, which is the book of life. Now the dead are judged out of the things written in the books according to their works. Now what are these books, the plural books? One commentary I read suggested that these are books containing the record of the deeds of your life and mine, but I have an issue with that interpretation. An omniscient, omnipotent God will not on the day of judgment have to look at me and say, name please, all right, give me a minute to check your records here and read the things you've done, whether they're good or bad, and let me read the books and catch up on where you are. He's already going to know that. But let me ask you, do you find a verse in this book right here that tells us these books right here are going to be that which judges you and judges me in the last day? Do you find that? John 12, 48, what did Jesus say? He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall what? Judge him when? The last day. Question Where would you and I go to find the words that Christ has spoken to be able to judge whether our conduct is right or wrong? We have the books, and we can open up any one of these books and see whether our name is in the book of life or not. What if it's not? Look at verse number 14 of Revelation 20. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and then here we go. Verse 15 Whosoever was not found written in the book of life, what happens if your name's not in the book of life? Was cast into the lake of fire. Someone says, Brother Clark, we went from a sermon on rejoicing to hellfire. How do we do that? But wait, this passage says, if I'm not in the book of life, I'll be cast into the lake of fire, but that has an implication If I am in the book of life, then I'm not going to be what? I'm not going to be cast into the lake of fire. There's only one other place to go. That's heaven. And heaven will surely be what? 
worth it all. Often I'm hindered on my way, burdened so heavy I almost fall. And then I hear Jesus sweetly say, heaven will surely be worth it all. No wonder Paul could say in Romans 8, 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to usward. There's something about heaven that is going to be so joyful because let's just think about this. Jesus on the day of judgment is depicted in the parable of the talents as saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into, what's the next expression? Enter thou into what? Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now, I'm assuming there's a baptistry back there. I say that because I preached a meeting one time and all week long I pointed to the baptistry behind me. And on Thursday of the meeting, someone said, hey, by the way, our baptistry is in the other part of the building. I said, hey, could you tell me that on Sunday next time? I appreciate it. So I'm assuming there's a baptistry back there. It's possible someone in this very room was baptized in that very baptistry. Wherever you were baptized, think about it. You remember how you felt? How'd the eunuch feel when he heard that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, was willing to confess such, go down into the water, come up out of the water, and he went on his way? Rejoicing, right? He went on his way rejoicing. Uh, Did you know that Demas did the same thing? There was a time when Demas would have gone on his way rejoicing because he was a Christian and he was a missionary companion of Paul and he would have been, but what happened, tell me what happened to Demas. Paul would later write of him in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Demas hath what? Forsaken me, what's the problem? Having loved this present world. I'm telling you, the number one way that Satan tries to get you to leave the joy that God offers you is to convince you that there's a joy that God won't let you have, that if you just pursue it, you'd know true joy. You don't believe me? Tell me, what what, what was this tactic in the Garden of Eden? They could eat of every tree in the garden. God wasn't withholding good things from them. They They could eat from every tree in the garden except for one, and that was the one they were not to eat of, lest they surely what? Die, yes. So what does Satan do? He starts trying to get Eve to doubt this. Hath God said, what, would, what did God really say? And then, ah, uh, you know, God knows if you eat of that tree, you'll be like he is. You'll know what he knows. And you will have true happiness. If you think Satan's modus operandi doesn't stay the same, how did he tempt Jesus? How did he tempt Eve? Well, when the, Genesis 3, 6, when she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that would taste good. And that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, looks good. And the tree to be desired to make one wise, it would make me look good. That sounds a lot like 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world, is, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. The world passes away in the lust thereof. But what are those lusts that are in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
the pride of life. And so here's exactly what Satan's trying to get you to believe, what he tried to get Demas to believe. And Demas unfortunately followed after this idea. The world has something to offer me that I can't find in Christ. Friends, when you're facing the death of a loved one, I want you to be reminded of what the world cannot give you. Science, with all of its great experimentation and discovery, cannot come to the gravesite of your loved one and say, I've conducted an experiment that will give you tremendous comfort today as you say goodbye to your loved one here on earth. There's nothing they can say, but let me ask you, is there anything in this book right here that would comfort you greatly on that day of sorrow? In the midst of your sorrow, can you still rejoice? Yes. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. They have rest from their labors. Their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. Rejoice in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13. And so that's where true joy is found if your name's in the book of life. But that leads me to the second of these observations quickly, and these last two will go quickly. Look at verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Here we go. The Lord is at hand. True or false, the nearness of someone you love and trust can be extremely comforting in a time of darkness and sorrow. You ever go to one of these caverns? They get you down into the cave or the cavern a good ways, and then what do they like to do just to show you how dark dark can be? Turn out the lights. And when they turned out the lights, our toddler did not think it was funny. He was just getting his legs under him. And he could walk, but he it wasn't, you know, in the light, that's one thing. It's pitch dark. I'm in a strange place. He starts wailing. It wasn't hard to find him. I just followed the piercing sound, reached for it, and there he was. I pick him up. I'm holding him. I'm patting him on the back. I'm saying, it's okay, it's okay. I'm here. You know what? It starts calming down. Why? It's still dark. My father has me in his arms. As long as my father has me, I don't care how dark the night may be, I know I'm safe and secure in his arms, safe in the arms of Jesus. What a wonderful concept. And this last part here, I want you to uh, see, go to John 16 before we get to that. John chapter 16. And I want you to please notice that here Jesus contrasts the sorrow of this world with the sorrow of the Christian, the joy of this world with the joy of the Christian. In John 16, 20, Jesus tells his apostles as he's facing, in fact, go back to one chapter to 15, 13. In a moment, at a moment when Jesus had every right to be thinking only of himself, we might think he was not thinking only of himself. In John 15, 13, he says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But look at what he said in verse 11 to them. These things, John 15, 11, have I spoken unto you, Jesus, why did you speak these things? That my joy, Jesus was joyful, yes or no? Was Jesus a joyful person? 
that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might, how much joy does Jesus want you to have? That your joy may be full. John is, by the way, listening to these words. He writes them in this gospel record by inspiration, but he would also later in 1 John 1 and verse 4 say, these things write we unto you, John. Why did you write this epistle? One thing I love about 1 John, you don't have to wonder why he wrote it. He comes right out several times and says, here's why I'm writing. And the very first thing out of the gate, he says, here's the, here's the reason why I'm writing. These things write we unto you that your joy may be what? Full. He wants you to have a full joy, not just a shred or a scintilla, but a joy that's full and abundant and overflowing. Now, someone says, but wait a minute, how do you explain John 16, 20? Jesus says, <clears throat> verily, verily, I say unto you, he's talking to his apostles, his followers, ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful. Have you ever felt that way? We named our youngest son, Michael, after a young boy who was in his 20s by the name of Mike Savage. And I met him in Knoxville, was able to restore or work with him to restore him and his brother to the church. They were young men that were good guys, but they'd been away from the church and needed to repent and make some things right. Mike did. Then he introduced me to his girlfriend. I had a Bible study with her, baptized her, Things seemed to be going well. He came walking in one day. He said, got two words for you, getting married. Will you do the ceremony? I said, I'd be honored to do the ceremony. And so I preached his wedding. Two years later, I preached his funeral. Because he had a form of cancer that when they misdiagnosed it several months as an infection rather than as a cancer, it, <clears throat> by the time they realized their error, <clears throat> it had gone further than it would, would have gone. And he sat on his couch, withering away as a, from a strong, healthy 24-year-old to dying at age 26. At that same time that he was withering away and dying, Howard Stern, the F's, the radio shock jock, as they call him, was paid $100 million plus dollars by Sirius Radio to get on the radio over the satellite radio and say any filthy thing that came into his mind. And I thought, Here's, this guy's making millions and millions, multiplied tens of millions of dollars, spreading filth, they're glorifying him and making movies about him. And here's my, here's my friend and my brother in Christ who is on fire for the Lord and he's withering away and dying on his couch. And then I remember John 16 as I was studying the Bible one day as I was lamenting over this very situation. There's a phrase in the last part of verse 20 that's oh so precious to the Christian. We've never been promised a sorrow-free life. When I was growing up, 
One of the popular songs was, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. And there's a sense in which as a Christian we need to realize we've never been promised exemption from suffering and sorrow. The apostles weren't, yet they still rejoiced. Yea, all that would live godly lives in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12, and yet the world shall rejoice, but you will be sorrowful, but, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. My friend Mike Savage has been rejoicing now for decades. He's not measuring time where he is, but we're still doing that here on earth. And so he's, I'm confident, received joy that Howard Stern has never known. I, because I love every man's soul, would love to see Howard Stern know it here and hereafter. But I guarantee you there's nothing this world has to give or can offer you in fact, what's that song that we sing? The world has nothing left to give. It has no new, no pure delight. Oh, try the life which Christians live. Be saved, oh, tonight. And be there's something to be saved and to look forward to. Verse 21, a woman, when she's in travail, has sorrow. When she's in labor, she has sorrow because her hours come. By the way, pro tip for some husbands in here, if you're... If your wife goes into labor unexpectedly and you don't get to have the, you know, epidural or something like that to help relieve her pain, and you think that the best thing for you to do at that moment is to give her a pep talk, I want to recommend against it. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. Trust me on this one. Uh, you think you're being, the people in Hebrews 11 did it. You can do it too, okay. Uh, Right now, I just want to hurt you, okay? <laughs> Listen, the good news, though, from this passage is there's joy that comes after that sorrow, that labor. As soon as the child is born, the Bible says, she doesn't remember the anguish as much for joy that a man is born into the world. And you now, therefore, you'll have sorrow, but... I will see you again. Your heart shall rejoice, and this is a joy no man can take from you. Leads me to the final point there in Philippians 4, and that's verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. I'm telling you, there's something wonderful about knowing that I can talk to God anytime I want to. When I lived in Mississippi, I tried for two years to get my senator to talk to me. I never could get him to talk to me personally. You know, I can talk to God right now, this second, this moment, no waiting, no call waiting, no call back. I can talk to him right now. That fills me with such tremendous fulfillment to know that I can always gain him. I'll close with this illustration to prove this concept. CEO of a major company says to his secretary, look, hold my calls, cancel my appointments. The deadline for this project is today. I can't be distracted. And so a multimillionaire from across town tries to get through to him. She blocks the call and says, when would be a good time for him to call you back? Someone drops by that has great influence in the community. I'm sorry he's not available right now, but I'll tell, I'll tell him you came by and when could we reschedule a visit? And then 
tiny knock on the door, and he knows immediately that knock. He bolts out of his business chair. He walks over and swings the door wide open, and there's his three-year-old son like this with his arms like this, pick me up, daddy. And he picks up that three-year-old boy and hugs him tight, gives him fatherly kisses on the cheek and says, I love you, son. I love you so much. You tell me, how did a three-year-old wiggle his way into a room multimillionaire bigwigs couldn't get into? How did he do that? You know the answer, don't you? Sonship. That's my child. And I'm telling you today, whatever you're going through, if you came here today and you know your name is in the Lamb's book of life, and you know that the Lord is near, and you know that the Lord will hear, you have reasons to rejoice. 